Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast, produced by Bob and Brad, the two most famous physical therapists on the internet, in our opinion, of course. I am joined today by my guest host. Uh, well, first I should introduce myself, shouldn't I? <laughs> yes, both. I am Bob. I'm exactly one half of the Bob and Brad team, and I am joined today by my guest host, Michael Keenitz, who is part of the Bob and Brad crew. And they have a their own channel, by the way. You should check it out because they do reviews on products. Yep, related to your health, fitness, and overall well-being. Sure. And you're going to introduce our guest today. Yes, our guest today, his name is Dr. Kelly Starrett. He is a coach, physical therapist, two-time New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author, speaker, and co-founder of The Ready State, the world's most comprehensive collection of guided movement, mechanics, and mobility instructional videos. Believe me, this is a, an abbreviated uh, introduction because we could go on and on about his accomplishments, but we'll hopefully get into some of that uh, during the interview. So, um, Kelly, were you one of the first? Did I understand it? You were one of the first to use a lacrosse ball for mobilization. Was is one that of my, it is. It's one of my patients. I was handing out, remember how long we've been giving out tennis balls, right? Right, and, right. Right. And then taping two tennis balls together. And I was like, I guess right. I went to PT school to tape two tennis balls together. And then I started um, collecting old tennis balls because one of the things I noticed as a young student finishing up my, my internship at Kaiser was the more steps I put between a patient or person and them actually doing something, the less likely it was to happen, right? right? And so I went to these old tennis clubs and it was like, hey, can I have all your old flat balls? And so, and then the student showed up with like 500 tennis balls, me, and I started giving them out. And then we had the pinky ball, which we could sell. And I was like, have you seen people like a, a smushed tennis ball or a pinky ball? It's not enough. So I started playing around when I became a physio, full-fledged uh, adult physio. I became, I started giving people rubber band balls that you could buy at the, you know, Staples. Sure. And then one of my patients came in and was like, because I love the grippiness, I love the tackiness. And one of my patients came in and said, hey, have you tried a lacrosse ball? And I was like, it's too hard. It's too soft. It's too big. It's too small. But I was like, how much does it cost? He's like a buck. And I was like, it's perfect. <laughs> so that was, that was when we started because, you know, I could buy a, a case of a hundred for a hundred bucks, basically for my local lacrosse shop. And then what I saw was, you know, I was able to save my hands. You right. know, we were sort of becoming obsessed with intercession change right? How much change can we get to this person to be able to do shifting low side control back to them at home in between sessions? Because it turns out I just can't see someone often enough or train them often enough as a physical therapist. The whole system isn't set up that way. Yeah. So that was the really the beginning of me thinking, hey, what's going on? And then I was like, oh, I can do all the Greg Johnson stuff with this lacrosse ball and, you know, percussion, you know, fascial release with percussion. And we could get people breathing and mobilize their T-spines and and I was like, man, these lacrosse balls are great. And it turns out when some of our military that we've been working with, some of our elite combat medics, they'll deploy with a voodoo floss band and a, and a, a lacrosse ball and it becomes a junction tourniquet. They have used it on the leg when people are bleeding out after significant trauma. And it turns out that lacrosse ball right on that, you know, that, you know, right on side of your groin is a fantastic way to, to stop bleeding. So who knew? Well, it kind of leads me to my really first question, which is, uh, yeah, I think I somewhat know the answer to this, but your creativity seems to be off the charts. I mean, and what do you feel feeds that? I mean, what, what, what do you, how do you come to all this creative process? You know, you know, what I, what was really freeing to me was, um, you know, I, while I was in physio school, you know, I was a professional athlete and paddled myself right off the national team with a brachial plexus cervical injury oh my and just an overuse injury. Right hand went numb, couldn't turn my head, just classic. And then, you know, when I'm in PT school, I'm already Olympic lifting. I'm doing these things, but I discovered this thing called CrossFit. And CrossFit today, iteration is not the CrossFit I discovered. Not that that's good or bad. It just wasn't the same. But all of a sudden I had to be competent in, you know, kettlebells and dumbbells and all the barbell movements and basic gymnastics. And I'd learn how to run and row and swim. I just realized I wasn't very skilled, but I think part of 
what I have appreciated around that experience was that I was able to appreciate that all of these were just different tools to achieve a position or to reinforce a shape or a certain mechanic, right? Or, or you could even think loading a certain tissue if, if you're still, still so inclined to think in that way, right? And what ends up happening then is that you realize that a lot of the things that we're sort of arguing about or confused about isn't science, it's math. And what ends up happening then is that you kind of get into an algorithm or a way of thinking where you don't have to prove the math the math exists. And so if we're talking about a congested tissue, suddenly, you know, there are a lot of ways to decongest that tissue. As long as that the lymphatics are being addressed and I'm able to, you know, you know, decrease that interstitial space and move, evacuate fluid, well then I can walk and do that, I can elevate and do that, I can compress and do that. And then I really have to appreciate that, you know, when I began to see all of these things as tools, I really became agnostic about the best way to solve the problem. Like show me a better way. And I didn't have to come from a certain school of thought. And I, I feel very fortunate that I came out of a classic trained sort of physio program that was heavy Maitland approved. Like we were so deep into manual therapy, but the World Center for PNF at Kaiser Vallejo was right down the street. Right. And I had this incredible NDT therapist from Herrick right in Berkeley. So I had this incredible overlap. And what's really interesting to me always is seeing how different schools of thought are approaching the same problem. And when you start to see the, the mutually accommodating aspects of those things, then you really start to your mind sort of opens up. And what you realize is that you have this incredible tool set that we can scale up and scale down based on resources of the patient or the person or you know what they have access to. But ultimately it comes back to the math. And are you following the math or not? Not following the science. Science is about pattern induction through large data sets. That is the heart of this, the scientific method. And you know, when we address or work with a patient, you know the key for us is to get as quickly as we can to making a hypothesis and then testing that hypothesis. And that hypothesis may be this person needs some unconditional positive regard and they need to be, I'm not gonna touch them and I'm gonna teach them to squat and manage that because they're on you know, morphine and they've had radio frequency ablation and you know, like they're, they're on full disability. You know, all of a sudden I make a hypothesis about what's the best way in and then I just drop the tool in. And I have to say honestly too, one of the things that I think sometimes is tricky as a working physical therapist is you are in the trench so hard digging your ditch, trying to stay ahead of paperwork and seeing your patients wow. and taking care of their families, that you don't actually have time to go out and see what everyone else is doing. And one of the things I get to do as a coach is that I get to travel and be around a ton of other coaches and systems. And so if I'm talking to the owner of the Niners, that gives me information. If it's, I'm working with, you know, British, you know, the England so national soccer team, if I'm working with the All Blacks, I'm working with the military. And so suddenly I get access and I start to see how people are solving problems. So with the Voodoo Floss Bands, I had heard of compression using a band from Dick Herzl, who invented the jump stretch band. He is the godfather of using jump stretch bands. But he was using these for occlusion and like basically BFR. He was early into the BFR, but using bands for BFR. And if he had someone had a swollen joint and that's blood flow restriction, if people don't know, there it is. Sure. And lo and behold, I was out working with Louis Simmons. There it is, the voodoo band. I was yeah. out working with Louis Simmons and um, I saw that he was having his athletes duct tape their hamstrings. They were duct taping these power lifters, squatting thousand were duct taping their hamstrings. And I was like, you know, and I was like, I had this moment of Satori where I was like, I wonder if we can make a band that allows us to create shear and compression or changes how the brain is interpreting what's going on with the tissues or evacuate swelling or get some flexion gapping or whatever the mechanism is. It doesn't matter. I made a hypothesis. We tested it. And again, I think some of that comes from being in a community that is ruthless about trying to solve the problem the most efficient way possible. Yeah, it seemed to, uh, you mentioned quite often just even using rubber tubing, right, for the, the voodoo floss? Uh, I think we talked uh, about using um, a bike tire. Right, right. Because it turns out that when my 
military friends or my my people working in relief work after like earthquakes, you know, there's always in a third world country a bike, but there's not always a voodoo band. Sure. So, you know, again, we you know one of the things that we've tried to do is say, hey, look, why are we putting the healthcare professional at the center of the experience, right? All we need to do is continue to move as much unskilled care out from behind the paywall and empower people to take a crack at fixing themselves. That is our core fundamental belief. And I feel like physio is at a really interesting time right now where we have a moment where we're asking who owns what? You know, the internet has blown open. I, the work that you do and the way that you talk on the, on the YouTube and you're, you know, you have basically, I'm like, should I even go to PT school? You know, if I'm a person, right. I can drop into your material and really begin to change my own life without having to have seen a doctor, without having to have taken a day off from work, without waiting five weeks for an evaluation that lasted 30 minutes before I was punted to someone else for some low level care. And what we're seeing is we're basically, it's home health PT. We're saying, we trust you with certain guidelines and certain abilities to be able to do this in the context of your busy, crazy lives as a working mother or working father. And what we're seeing is a real revolution and it's making a lot of people uncomfortable because I think what we've been doing is passing off unskilled care for a minute as skilled care. And finally, we're getting to these more sophisticated conversations where people are coming in, as you know, and they're like, I've done this and this and this, and this is what I think the problem is, and this isn't working. And what do you think the problem is? And, you know, PT's heads explode because, you know, the first, you know, 27 dance moves in their, in their routine have already been done and attempted by the person. So I think we're able to get to a little bit more nuanced conversation about musculoskeletal care. And I think we have to, because honestly, if we apply this rubric of how are we doing like how are we seeing fewer ACL injuries? Are we having less back pain, fewer orthopedic surgeries? What I'll say is, man, diabetes is out of control. Obesity is out of control. Musculoskeletal pain is out of control. Physical therapists are failing. So we have to think about, and again, it's not just us, but we're gonna have to think about where we deliver this and how we deliver this as importantly as how do we get more skilled and continue to battle sort of this insidious environmental load because what we're currently doing, our old model is no longer serving us. Gotcha. Yeah, it, um, going back to your creativity too, it seems as though you're very well read. And uh, I'm, I'm, I have to hate to say this, but I, I was late to the party here where Kelly started here. I, I, I only picked up your stuff about three, two couple, couple months ago. And, but uh, your book here, Becoming a Supple Leopard, oh my God, it's changed my life. I mean, it really oh. has. One thing, <laughs> This is, I'm 60, almost 61 years old, and I, I couldn't, I've been stretching for years, but I couldn't squat below 45 degrees, and I can get down below level now, especially with that mulligan technique with the band pulling off oh, the side. How oh. brilliant is, how brilliant is mulligan? I mean, yeah, like is. hip quadrant is the first thing that I ever do when I'm trying to solve a a hip problem. It's the first thing I look at, and I was, remember being a, like a first year PT being like, working, you know, in my gym and also thinking, why can't I do this to myself? You know what I mean, yeah. and suddenly I was able to take these powerlifting bands, get myself in kind of single leg quadruped, like a bird dog. And I was like, wait, whoa, whoa, I can approximate the hip and work on the rotation. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's really what we get to have a chance. And that book is already, you know, seven to eight years old now. I mean, it, you know, we were at like, I think we've gone 600,000 copies, believe oh it or not. Oh my gosh. Right, we're over a half a million copies and um, we're working on the next edition, which will be much more streamlined. I'm adding another hundred pages because, you know, while the principles, there's nothing I would change around the principles, the methodology or the application has become more refined because we continue to work and we continue to, you know, have this ability. Like if you read the Maitland textbooks, you know, they are kind of static, right? you know, and it's difficult to appreciate how to apply that thinking towards movement, right? Which is the biomotor expression is the game. So, you know, this book has been really amazing. And, and uh, you know, one of the reasons is that we fundamentally believed that, you know, the person who was delivering the most healthcare and the most contact time was the coach and the trainer. 
And what we needed to do is sort of expand the Venn diagram of saying who owns position. And then also the first, you know, half two thirds of the book is applying a movement theory to all of the classic movements of strength and conditioning, right? right? Being able to categorize and think about it so that suddenly you're like, okay, I understand why we teach what we do or we explain what we do and, and really struggling to understand sort of a good model. You know, the model has to explain, any good model has to explain current phenomenon. So how are we teaching and why are we using these techniques to have better expression of how humans can move, right? And it's not the only way, but it's the way that keeps the most lights on in the room. It's the way that maintains the most physiology or gives us the most access to our positions or, or you know, gives us the most movement choice, right? We always teach the highest expression of the movement. And I think what confused people is that we're ne we never said, hey, don't round your back. In fact, that, that book is full of rounded back movements like kipping pull-ups and learning to roll and somersaults and rope climbing and all those things. But we said is, hey, that's a really terrible position to run in because you can't breathe and your pelvic floor is inhibited and your neck is not in a great shape and you can't rotate to catch a football. And so suddenly when we really put the biomotor expression at the heart, you know, what we saw was we saw increased output of people's function. But what was really nice is when we, you know, I came out of a world where I didn't need to use lots of corrective exercises. It's a style choice. Some people just love, I mean, Gray Cook is one of my best friends. Like he and Lee are like the captains of the corrective exercise team where they taught people how to slow down and feel through isometrics and tempo work, how to restore movement. Well, it turns out they didn't have the tool set that I had in terms of strength and conditioning. I mean, the functional movement stream came out in 1986 and it was a revelation in 96. No one was overhead squatting. You, when I started my gym in 2005, you couldn't buy a kettlebell in San Francisco. That's how much has changed. You can now buy kettlebells at Target, right? I mean, something has you know gone, gone crazy here. So one of the things that I think we found out was that when we had people change or improve or adjust their movement so that we were moving towards higher expressions, the highest expressions, the way we teach Olympic lifting in the Olympics, the way we teach cycling and gymnastics, we oftentimes had better, more robust positions, better joint congruency, better tissue loading, but maybe the brain just was like, oh, that's different. And because it's different, I don't have to keep my eye on it anymore, right? I don't have to you know, map that position with pain. And so I think we got a big swing in people making themselves feel better and self-soothing when we actually taught them good technique for the first time. And I think that's part of the magic of this thing is, Again, can I explain current phenomenon? Can I predict future phenomenon? And can I communicate? Well, it turns out we already had this incredible movement language. I've taught on every continent except Antarctica. And guess what? Everyone knows what a push-up is. Any country, everyone knows what a push-up is. So why is the push-up not our diagnostic language? Why is an air squat higher than a language? Right? Even in Maitland, those things were the quick tests, right? They're like they were provocation tests versus the thing we're trying to change. So I feel like when we had a chance to marry that up, you know, it was really foreign for a lot of physical therapists because it wasn't the language we were teaching and it wasn't in the environment where we were trying to improve people. We were waiting basically as therapists until people had failed out of their current environment and had tripped over that naggy model that, right, of saying, hey, I can't occupy my role in society. I can't do my job in the family. I can't exercise or do my role on the team. That is true injury or disability. But more importantly, I was like, there's got to be a step relationship between this incomplete mechanics and poor technique, plus crappy environmental load, right? Poor sleep, stress, hydration, nutrition. And I was like, oh, you mean the biopsychosocial model? The thing I've been working with my athletes forever to get the best thing? So it turns out the strength conditioning performance model really helped me make sense of physical therapy in a really profound way. And I think that you know brings up the point. Uh, this, although every athlete should definitely take a look at this. It really is for the general population. I mean, yes, because you, I mean, again, as an elderly person, I mean, you want to get that hip mobility back. You want to get all of that mobility back. In fact, you talk about the corners, I, which I think you're talking about getting that excess or the range of motion to the end. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Finding and, and the corners really speaks to the fact that you know, we've been looking at cardinal ranges forever, but right. really these rotation 
plus cardinal ranges matters. You, you know, that's how the hip and the shoulder creates such incredible stability. And, you know, some of the most important work I've experienced has been working with my pelvic floor brothers and sisters, you know, and family, because really beginning to understand that, you know, that, you know, uh, the, this, you know, pelvic lumbar fascia, right, is contiguous with the femur and part and parcel, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait a minute, we have 10 muscles that flex the hip and 13 muscles that externally rotate the hip. I wonder if external rotation of the hip is really important somehow in creating a stable pelvis on femur relationship. And so suddenly you're like, well, huh, I wonder if I should have my feet straighter because that allows me to create better rotational kinematics or have better access to that rotational language. And then suddenly you're like, well, boy, I guess it doesn't matter if I'm going slow and I'm lifting small weights or, but as soon as I'm adding intensity and speed or load or power, man, I really want to have the choice to have the most physiology accessible to me in my brain. And so suddenly you're like, oh, okay, those corners, they have to matter a little bit. So, you know, I think that's what's so amazing is that, you know, if I have any skill set at all, it's, I'm really clever at spotting patterns and relationships. And that was like, when I went into PT school, I was like the black sheep. Cause I'd be like, wait, 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 wait. How does this wound care relate to this nutrition course, relate to this movement thing that I'm supposed to do? Why, why, why are these such disparate disconnected ideas when ultimately the, the human is the most complex structure in the known universe in this really complex body environment that now we're realizing we're going to, I just hugged my hundred year old Chinese grandmother. She's my step-grandmother. Uh -huh. We had dinner last night. She is completely independent. She uses a walker only because she moves so fast. Oh, bravo. But here is a human being in my family. That's a hundred years old and engages and cuts her own hair and eats dinner. And you're like, Winnie is a hundred. You, you can't believe how badass she is. <laughs> and that's in my face every day that age 47, I better care about getting off the ground. And, you know, sure. the things that you're talking about, you, even if you don't self-identify as an athlete, right. things you do in your day-to-day -day life are athletic. Picking up your kids, picking up your grandkids, getting off the ground, carrying groceries. That is the heart and soul. We're just scaling up or scaling down. So you know, I'm front confronted every day with this miracle of human physiology and boy, it seems like Wolf's Law, use it or lose it, right, really was important around the, the long-term survivability and, and strategy of the human. Well, I got to first apologize to Mike. I, I told Mike I was going to ask the first bunch of questions because I'm being selfish, and this is the most selfish <laughs> question of all. So I love golf, and I, I started uh, watching your virtual mobility coach on your, on your website. And uh, one series, he, I, you, I don't know if you know what this one or not, but he was talking about, we have to have basically mobility at the hips, stability at the, the mid, low back, mobility at the mid back, and then stability at the shoulders. So I've been working on that, really been helping my game. You're the best performance coach or one of the best in the world. I got to ask, is there anything else I should be working on? Or is there at some point you work on speed or strength, uh, you know? You know. Well, so what's really interesting is, you know, I have come to realize that, you know, my, look, I have strong feelings about the way you should train, right? And, you know, it's because I'm, I, if you sit down next to an airplane with me, I'm not gonna tell you I'm a physical therapist, I'm gonna tell you I'm a performance coach. That's the right. thing. And then I, but oh yeah, I was trained as a physical therapist too. That's why I can see what I can see. So, but what we're trying to do is say, hey, look, I'm not going to try to be all things to all people. Instead, I'm going to get your body to be able to have you access the shapes so that you can then go do, spend those credits any way you want. Gotcha. And if you love soul cycle and golf and kettlebells, I'm like, great. You go to church and Pilates. I mean, you're in a community, you feel safe and you deadlift a little bit, run some hills. I'm like, that's also a pretty great movement practice. So however you want to do that, but you know, some of this, my own experience came out is because I get to work alongside legitimately, not hyperbole, the greatest athletes on the planet. My job is not to interrupt their relationship with their coach who teaches them technique, who has a plan. My job is to get them ready to be able to be coached. And so suddenly, 
you know, what you just described is a really complex interrelationship, regional interpendencies between hips and shoulders and trunk and stabilizing and addressing the ball. Well, all of that's baked into our technique of how we get good mechanics. But turns out if you're stiff in the upper back and you can't take a breath, you can't, or you're rounded forward, you can't really rotate. So if we begin to simplify the system, if we begin by restoring what we all agree is your native range of motion that everyone should be able to have, and that's a standard deviation. You don't have, you're not a special snowflake. We see special snowflakes, but you're just not that special, you know? And so what ends up happening then suddenly is you're like, oh, I worked on the interrotation of my hip. And suddenly yeah. I was able to rotate a little bit further. And the things that we assess, like part of, we have a formal assessment course is one on our 102 course, but we don't assess rotation. We just didn't find it to, to kind of give the dividends that we, like the application of that information wasn't very good. Cause what we saw was, boy, if I returned your internal rotation, got into your lateral seam through the lat, gave you some shoulder extension and we improved your thoracic positioning, your rotation went off the charts and we didn't even fix rotation, right? So once again, I think if we can give people the building blocks, I mean, sometimes I'm like, man, as all I'm doing is just trying to restore people's normal dorsiflexion, right? You know, I'm right. just trying to make it so your big toe moves again for the first time in a long time. And maybe it's that simple. Then I really do believe your brain is clever enough to be like, oh, we can do this now, let's do it. And yeah. what we know from our best motor theory, I think Franz Bosch is doing the best work he's out of uh, Holland around understanding this is, you know, he's written a, his most recent book is called The Anatomy of Agility. And what you see in the first half of the book is really about motor learning, motor learning, motor theory, is that he says, look, your brain is so amazing. Again, the most sophisticated structure in the universe, that if you don't have access to a position, that movement choice gets shut down in your brain as a possibility, right. right? And so suddenly if we have a little bit more motion in your calcaneus and you can side bend a little bit, your brain will use that space. And then it's your job to then go express that any way you want, right? And then when you start to again say, well, what is essential about the movements of a human being? Suddenly you jump into sun salutation and yoga and you're like, whoa, this is genius. And then you realize that Joseph Pilates was not messing around. He had really important ideas around keeping people doing the things they do. The problem is that we then, you know, hold those things as sacrosanct and immutable when we have all of these other tools and all these other considerations. So the, the real question is, when do you do it all? You know, that's really the interesting thing. Well, thank you. Thanks for that information. Um, again, I'm, it's just been beautiful. So Mike, I'll let you answer, ask a question. But let, let me say that the thing I loved about that question was, how do I know it's working? because the thing you cared about got better, yeah, right? Exactly. That, yeah. that is the only thing I care about. Like, you know, if I'm like, hey, I've reduced your ACL injury risk by approximation, right. no one cares. Like right. my kids don't care, they just want to slay or the world champions are like, dude, I'm, I'm 22. It doesn't matter. I'll deal with that when I'm 80, but right. you can help someone go faster or run. Or, you know, we tried, for example, around pain, you know, we have treated pain like a medical problem forever. And pain certainly can be a medical problem if it disrupts your ability to occupy your role in the family or do your job or, right, or recreate or go to education, those, those fundamental ideas about disability. But we have really appreciated that pain, honestly, is just like information of loss of, of performance, loss of range of motion, loss of wattage, loss of output. And when we start to just appreciate that pain is a cue or a signal about some aspect of how the system is working or something you can pay attention to, then it's just more information about this, right? And so again, when we, people are like, you know, I was just working with an athlete and she was like, you know, when I hit the ball, it feels like I'm getting stabbed between my shoulder blades. I'm like, well, that's not great. And she's like, I just want to hit the ball again, pain-free. And I was like, is that really what you want? Because we'll get there in like two days. I'm like, what does it really want? She's like, I want to smash the crap out of the ball <laughs> in my drives. I was like, okay, now we're having something. Now we're talking. Because pain is really the low bar. And if you don't believe me, take some ibuprofen and then go to your job. Sure. Go get drunk and tell me about your pain. <laughs> so what, right. we've been self-soothing pain forever. So that can't be the only reason 
and the impetus around the things that we're doing. So your, your thing is like, hey, I'm driving better. I'm like, okay. And right. now, how, how's my adherence? Well, I don't have to sell you anything. Right, yeah, right, right. I've got extreme motivation now. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's, that's the game, right? Let's help you do what you want to do better than you think you can do it. Yeah. Michael? All right. So in your opinion, what are the best basic lifts for most athletes that they should prioritize? Mm, that's so good. Well, you know, what's so interesting about that is I think inherently in that conversation is the question of like, what do I think is not important, right? That's, that's a tricky question. Cause what you're saying is, you know, I'm like voodoo floss your whole body, perform one full snatch. That's your mobilization for the week. You're all set, right? And uh, what, what really, what we need to be asking ourselves is what are the fundamental positions and the fundamental organization of the hips and the shoulders that express what a human should do? So it turns out if you, for example, clean and jerk and snatch, the only, you're missing two, two things, depending on how you clean and jerk. You're missing some hip extension, but you could be split jerking, or you're missing some shoulder extension, but that's why all my, my Olympic lifters do heavy rows and bench press, right? Because they've figured out that they have a movement practice that's pretty thorough, and yet, they still need these accessory positions because the shoulder has to come behind your body. The hip has to come behind your body. So suddenly when you start asking those questions, you know, what you can say is, well, I think you need to train some hip extension, something that looks like a lunge. And then I'm like, well, how do you want to do that? Do you want to do Pilates? Do you want to do yoga? Do you want to do warrior one? Do you want to do walking lunges? Do you want to do step? And I don't care. I'm agnostic. You want to do split trap bar deadlifts? Great. In the split position? Fantastic. You know, do we need to hinge and squat? Yes. Do you need to put your arms over your head? Yes. Well, how do you do that? Well, you can swim and you can hang from a pull-up bar and you can press overhead and you can snatch from overhead and suddenly you can do a handstand and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's a whole lot of different ways. So when we go through people's movements, you know, one of the things that we're doing is, of course, affecting the physiology. That's, you know, and that's traditionally how we thought about that. So I train because it gets me stronger and have stronger tendons, I have better bone density, right? And I maybe get better endurance. But how about we train to have these robust positions? It's as much about coordination as it about aspects of just the physiology, the, the size of the engine, how big the tires are on the machine. So, you know, there are some things that I think everyone should do. Like everyone should be able to swing a kettlebell on the planet. If everyone had a kettlebell in their house, I guarantee you, 99.9% .9 of the stuff just gets better, right? Why? Because, you know, the Russians have this clever saying, when you stop jumping, you start dying, right? Which means, boy, what's jumping look like? Well, I can just bounce up and down on my, uh, on the balls of my feet, like, uh, you know, Perry Nicholson of the Limp Doc says, where, you know, we're just getting the organs to move and waking up the vestibular system, or I can actually jump rope or I can swing a kettlebell, right? And there's so many ways for me to get jumping without having to actually jump up onto something. And, you know, for my children, I think I need them to do things like be able to strict press a barbell or, or dumbbells and push press. And that push press is, I think, crucial. And if you don't know what a push press is, that's basically when you use your hips to drive a weight up. So if it was really heavy, you'd use a little body English to put it over your head. But that teaches us a flat foot jump, which is exactly what the knees over toes guy is doing out in the world. He's teaching people to have enough forward translation of the knee, keeping the torso upright. I'm like, yes, AKA sport or going downstairs or, you know, carrying a backpack down a, a steep hill. So, so, you know, do I think I really love heavy deadlifting? Yes. I think everyone should be able to organize and get into the best shape that's available to them so they can pick something heavy. And then really it ends up being now, like you probably should be doing some pull-ups and push-ups and some classic calisthenics. But I'll tell you that all of those cues are there for us because they've been part of our physical culture for as long as human beings have been around. We've been obsessed with, I just saw an article like on Barbend where they were talking about some of the oldest writings about strength training. And it was some Chinese farmers carrying stones right, for time and distance. And I'm like, wow, look around the world. The Iranians did it, the Indians did it, the, the, the Persians were all about it, right? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, carrying heavy rocks. And we have been lifting things up off the ground, carrying around, putting them over our head for as long, that's called the Olympics, that's track and field. So ultimately, 
what I care less about is which lift do I think you need to do and more along the lines of what do you like to do that it loads you in these positions. Now we can actually have the next, because yes, I'm a movement optimist and all movement is good. Well, it turns out that I want you to be competent when the load is a little heavier than you're normally managed, but probably body weight. <clears throat> I need you to be able to put your arms over your head when you're breathing hard. I need you to be able to do it more than three reps or five reps, so a little metabolic demand, right? I need you to be able to do it in an open torque or closed torque system, i.e. you grab a barbell or you have a dumbbell or kettlebell. I need you to do it when you've done one movement and then do that, so we call that open practice or block practice versus random practice. So I change the motor skill. I need you to do it under competition. I need, and all of a sudden I'm like, holy crap, there are so, open chain, closed chain. What I'm really saying is there's so many ways to challenge the robustness and righteousness of you expressing, putting your arms over your head. However you like to do that, let's make sure that we can test how competent you are under these different conditions. And suddenly looking at your exercise program, I'm like, oh, you only ever put your arms over your head with your hands on the ground and downward dog. That may be a problem when you go swim because you're less skilled or that skill doesn't transfer over as effectively. So suddenly you, you get into someone like Louis Simmons work of the powerlifters of Westside. And he had this idea of conjugate training, which was, hey, we're gonna squat, but today it's to a different height with a different squat width. And we're gonna use a different bar. But the fundamental idea of squatting remains the same. And yet we're gonna change some aspect of the stimulus. And that's really the definition of modern high intensity exercise, I think. Mike, do you wanna take another question? Yeah. I mean, that's just my opinion. <laughs> That's uh, a very good opinion. So I, I see you've had a knee replacement recently. Do you I want, did. Do you want to talk I, I will about... say, language matters. I had my knee resurfaced. Oh. There we go. Oh, okay. Isn't that nice? Yes. Still my knee. But you know what's interesting? Um, yes, I would love to talk about this because I am a user who fights for the users now. It's, I, I don't know if you guys, have, either of you have ever had a total arthroplasty or a whole knee replacement or resurfacing. Gotcha. This is my first orthopedic surgery ever. And it happened because obviously I wasn't eating enough protein or I wasn't stretchy enough. This or was a ski accident. Right. <laughs> this was a ski. I, I was skiing very fast. I grew up racing skiing in Germany. I raced FIS and I was very strong and skiing very fast on some slalom skis and had my butt on the ground and I slipped out. And I ended up putting my femur into my tibia at high speed. Oh boy. So I had two gigantic bone lesions, AKA holes in the surfaces of my, both the top and the bottom parts of my leg. And when I went and finally got an MRI, cause I was like, huh, you know, like I, my knee felt stable and I was able to treat it was very swollen. The, the surgeon was like, hey, we should book your knee replacement now. And I was like, mm, I'm 40, I don't think so. I think it's give me a minute here. And I think I can still get some function out of this until I could no longer buffer anymore. So in October of this last year, October 20th, I went and jumped in and had my knee resurfaced. So you were able to uh, manage it for seven years? Yes. Wow, that's- and, and I, and managing it meant like, I only deadlifted 600 pounds. I only <laughs> no. skied 20 days a year. Oh, I only rode my bike like a maniac, but there were positions that felt terrible. And this is really important because what I discovered was I had positions that would not accept force. My brain was like, nope, you cannot be springy in that position. And so I started, I started my body started playing the whack-a-mole game where it would throw these error messages and all of a sudden my adductors would be really stiff one day and then my calf would be stiff one day and then the bottom of my foot would hurt. Why? Because my brain was like, well, that didn't work. We're not stable there. Let's try something else. Let's get stiff here. And, you know, the key here is that people are like, well, how's your pain? And I was like, I don't have pain. I have positions that feel terrible. But when we only make decisions based on pain, which is so subjective, I, you know, two of my best friends in the world, two people, women I just adore, happen to be some of the best cyclists ever. And if I dropped into their bodies in the middle of their World Cup or World Champion effort, I just ported myself in and took a look around, I would perish from the pain, right? Sure. My, my um, you know, I want people to understand this, that, you know, based on your previous experience and based on how robust you are, or the arousal or all these other things, you may or may not ever have pain, right? 
And what we want to make sure that we're having whenever we can, especially since I think we have such great tools to help manage discomfort, is we should be making orthopedic decisions based on function if the pain isn't a driver. Because there's plenty of times where the reason we have surgery is we have exhausted all of our tools, we can't get you comfortable, and now it's impacting your life. So now surgery could be a great option for that. The rest of us, what well, turns out I couldn't jump on one leg. Uh, I started to bug me on my mountain bike when I dropped my seat. You know, I was, I was portaging a class five rapid, a class six rapid, you know, in Idaho this summer. And I stepped down with my kayak on my, on my shoulder and almost fell to my death because my leg was like, nope, and just turned off. So, you know, I was able to buffer and manage this by being very strong, taking care of myself and managing the swelling. But when they went in there, you know, because it was the head of the orthopedic department at UCSF, when they went in there, they were horrified at what my knee looked like on the inside. They were like, what? Like, how did you do all of this? And I was like, well, if we don't wait around for pain and where we can manage that with a whole bunch of clever ways, like we can really leverage how robust people are and people are really robust. There's something that we're missing in our environmental loads. We're not walking enough. We don't eat enough protein. We are too inflamed. We don't sleep. We don't feel safe in our environments. Whatever the mechanisms are, they potentially lead to a human being that can take less damage or less is less tolerant of what we would call in our family, silly bullshit. So, I have all of these things going for me and all of a sudden I can't manage anymore. So I had my knee resurfaced. And I have to tell you, immediately I was like, oh, look at this. I can lunge again. Like I, the power is back. I can, like, I don't have a flat dull spot, you know, where, where the light was dim in my knee. Yeah. And it really did also teach me or reinforce the lessons that I've been hammering and all the people I've worked with. We have to manage your congestion. We have to load your positions. We're going to have to take care of the fascia. We're going to, you know, I think our current clinical guidelines are often based on swelling and pain, not based on function and time healing. So already I've deadlifted 570 and I ski like I'm free again and I'm back on my bike clipped in and doing whatever I want. And you wouldn't know, I barely have a scar. You wouldn't know that I had a, a total knee resurfacing you know, five months ago, but I'm not a fast healer. There's no such thing. You either heal at the rate of human beings or you heal slower than that. And I think that's, that's where I think there's a lot of sort of gold to be picked up off the ground. And that's what I've learned about my own experience here. Well, I wonder if I could, if you could address an example here. So let's say you have an elderly person who has went in for a scan, which I know you have uh, opinions on scans and such, but they go in and it's bone on bone in their knee. And, you know, what would you say to them as, as how much would you attribute that to the bone on bone and how much would you attribute to maybe soft tissue tightness or just overall weakness of the, of the knee? Well, what I would, you know, what I would say is what can we control and what levers can we improve, right? So it's going to be difficult for us to improve the surfaces of the joint and maybe some glucosamine or maybe some hyaluronic acid injections help, or maybe an unloader brace can manage, you know, because really what we're saying is what do you want to do with that? What's the context of that? Sure. And if it's, if it's, hey, you have really stiff knee and a tiny range of motion, but you don't have any pain and you can do your life, maybe I would not ask you to get a surgery because that is a gigantic risk. And the deconditioning that can happen as a result of that, we can take someone's entire vital reserve and just spend it on one surgery, right? I mean, you know right. this to be true. Right. The number one exactly. predictor of mortality is to fall and break your hip past 70. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, well, like, why is that? Well, I'm like, because you got super weak laying around in the bed and you started ejecting all your structural proteins right away and lost your balance and your confidence and your endurance and all the things that are allowing you to stay independent. So, you know, the second thing I'd say was, well, does coordination and strengthening, because when we use the word strengthening, that's very nebulous, right? I'm like, if three sets of 10 short arc quads right? Leg extensions with a tiny TheraBand made you stronger than the, the park was so low that I'm like, come on, we can get you stronger riding a bike. Right. And then we do, we talk about modifying some of your movement. Well, Hey, I know you really love to hike. Would you be considering being on an electric bike? Would you, how can we keep you? What are the tools available to us? Then we start to say, well, Hey, are there aspects of the mechanics here 
that we can improve that stiffness or you know tissue quality hydration and so suddenly when we start taking the same systems approach that we do when we're looking at musculoskeletal dysfunction and we start thinking in that systems then all of a sudden we begin to untangle a potential Gordian knot and but and sometimes it turns out surgery is the best option for this person because we have crossed out and run into hypothesis with this person's help of the things that made them better and the things that didn't make them better. And so then suddenly we can say, instead of just rushing right in, we can say, well, look, at the very least, one of the things we did was make it so that you have a much better surgical outcome right. because you're, you're set up. Because when, when they went in there and cut my, my capsule open, it started to bleed profusely. And the resident was like, what's happening? And my friend who's the surgical rep is my best friend was like, you're seeing a vascular capsule for the first time. Kelly is an, I'm an aerobic athlete. This is what I do. And what you're actually seeing is well-developed vascular systems, right? The, all the capillaries. So I'm bleeding. Wow. Then they can't actually cut the femurs. They went through three saw blades cutting my femur. Oh, that hard? My bones were so hard. Wow. And the head of orthopedics at UCSF was like, hardest bones we've ever seen. And I'm like, you should see my mutant women friends. Like, <laughs> my man, like I'm not even strong or badass. Like you should, like, how would you even cut the bones of non-mortal people? You know, because I'm a mortal guy. So, you know, what we start to see is, man, there's a lot of this physiology that we come to late in the game. And one of the things that I've become more obsessed about as I've gotten older, because I'm again, turning 48 this year, is saying, hey, what are the behaviors or the constellation of behaviors, what I call base camp behaviors that I need to engage in day to day that help me to be robust. Walking more, sitting on the ground more, really protecting my sleep, getting enough micronutrients into my diet and protein, right? And, and looking at some of those things, keeping an eye on my hip range of motion. If we, if we, if we didn't tell the population, hip range of motion matters or create an environment where the behavior was constrained. Because if you sit on the ground and toilet on the ground, you keep your hip range of motion. I mean, travel to a country that toilets on the ground where you have to squat and it becomes very evident that you can't squat very quickly, right? When you right. Have struggle to use the bathroom, <laughs> you know? And, you know, suddenly we're like, well, weird. The fall risk in the Japanese nursing homes almost drops to zero because they get up and down off the ground to sleep on the ground, right? And hip disease and in places where they do a lot of squatting and hanging out on the ground, cooking on the ground, sleeping on the ground, drops to almost zero. It turns out hip flexion and having some hip flexion with the, with the lumbar in the flex position is a great way to have rad healthy discs. So what we then start to see is, hey, by the time sometimes when someone has run into, they've used all their credits up, they've ended up not having great articular surfaces, their tissues are inflamed, they're hypohydrated, they're stressed, they're not very strong, it really handicaps and ties the hands behind the person's back to have the best outcome possible. And what we need to ask there is, well, where would I have these conversations? Because I have 30 minutes in a physical therapy office, right? As in Kaiser, sometimes people get three visits post ACL reconstruction. Uh, I'm like, well, how's that gonna go? You know, yeah. I'm like, I, let me tell you. And now they're like, well, it's just better not to repair the ACL and people who don't need it, right? Because that's what we're starting to learn. Like, you know, maybe you didn't need to have this, this horrific, you know, surgery and it's not horrific, but the outcomes, it's the same way that we're, 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 people are coming into the physician. And remember my father's a Kaiser physician and the best practice at Kaiser is that when someone has high blood pressure, they also start them on lisinopril and, you know, uh, you know, uh, an anti-cholesterol medicine, right? So simultaneously, there's a constellation where they're like, well, your cholesterol is super high. We're going to start you on the side blood pressure medicine. You're like, why? Because we know you're not going to change any of your behaviors. So what they figured out was it was cheaper to begin to medicate people on these, you know, statins and all these, you know, right. high, high, these, these medicines because changing behavior is so difficult. And what I would ask then is, well, is the doctor's office the place to change your behavior? Seems to me if all of that we're doing as physical therapists and strength and conditioning is trying to modify physical behavior and that we have a constellation of behaviors around sleep and nutrition and warming up and cooling down and walking decongestion, down regulation, those things are important, but maybe not best delivered in a physical therapy office in 20 minutes. 
Gotcha. Absolutely. And that's that's where your gyms come in handy, right? Uh, I think I think that's it. Or as we've saw now in the in the COVID pandemic, we have pretty sophisticated people who have some weights at home, and the internet's full of enough instruction where you can begin to do things like squatting. And then we have Peloton, and we have the mirror, and we have tonal, and we have all of these places developing and sort of you know focusing on movement health. You know. Um, I've been working with Amazon for the last two years on a movement health project really? because computer vision is here to stay and everyone has a movement diagnostic thing. It's called your phone. And now we're getting to the place where we can start to establish, you know, movement as a vital sign movement, which is, I think, a, you know, a great cook idea or a Shirley Sarman idea. And, you know, suddenly we can say, well, Hey, one of the fundamentals of, of health is movement health but we haven't been able to give people the parameters, 120 over 80, you know, blood pressure, you know, resting heart rate, those kinds of things. So suddenly we're starting to get there around movement. And I think that's how we're really going to democratize this whole process. Well, Mike, I don't know if you mind if I take this last one. Go ahead. Because I think- I'm, I, <laughs> I, you guys, I'm, I'm sorry. so fun to nerd out with you guys. It's, yeah, uh, I, I, I just apologize. But I just, I wanted to, show a couple of your mobilization devices and how you kind of came across them. Like, I love this one. This is the, uh, the supernova, right? That's it. Yeah. And I, I love this one for the, the tack and twist. Yes. And I love it for uh, just, I was rolling on it right now on my hamstring. Uh, uh, I love it. In, in, That's exactly yeah. right. You know, what the fundamental idea was where can we put this work in? Because you know, my wife is the CEO of our company. She's an attorney. She is a superstar. If you go to our Instagram today, you can see us talking about her. And, you know, she's a world champion and she is an, a unicorn. But if I give her another thing she has to do in the evening, she's not going to do it, right? Right. So what I try to say is, well, hey, where are the places where people have some agency and low side of control, right? Where can, well, it turns out if you're at work, that's the right place to sit on a ball and yeah. put some love into your hamstrings. Exactly. Why? Because your work and you could get paid to be mobilizing your tissues, right? Absolutely. So that ball, one of the problems that I was seeing is I was working with very big athletes and athletes who were sitting or having to sit in comfy chairs. And so everything was lacrosse ball size at the time, pinky ball size. And what I did was I was like, hey, I need something that won't disappear in a chair and is big enough to get right. into the hips and hamstrings Absolutely. of our bigger people. And then it turns out, you know, one of the things that I was very fortunate about is I got onto the fascia thinking very early. A girl that I dated in college uh, went to rolfing school when we were together. So I've been in the hallowed halls of Ida Rolf's Rolf Institute where they talk fascia. And I became fascia aware as an athlete early on. I'd been processed. I'd had rolfing sessions to 10 series where people are addressing these tensegrity models of my body. And one of the things I realized is like, I don't need to be steamrolled more. I want to create more shear. So what we tried to do with the supernova is create all this negative space. And so instead of you being spiked and poked, your tissues would sink into that negative space. And then it was a certain size that could be of service for some of the bigger areas that were a little bit too point pressure sensitive, right? We needed a bigger thing. So that's, that was the thing. And then it turns out my brother-in-law is an incredible architect and he designed the cover of Supple Leopard. I said, Tom, I want a computational leopard pattern. That's what he came up with. I was like, I uh -huh. need this design. You came up with that. If you see the Gemini, which was our thoracic mobilization device, right? Which is probably my favorite thing we've ever, that's it. Looks a little bit like a cross between a sex toy and a dog toy, right? <laughs> well, I love um, this. This is what I've been using for my thoracic mobilization along with a kettlebell on top of me. Oh, I love it. That's so great. And, you know, one of the things was I was like, well, you know, the problem with two lacrosse balls taped together, they're made for lacrosse, right. <laughs> they're not made for your body. Oh, and perfect. I, I really liked the, you know, I was exposed to the Kaltenborn thoracic wedge, the, you know, the Swedish thoracic oh, wedge. Yeah but it was too much for my, my meatheads. They would just yeah. shear right through and kill themselves, yeah. right? And so what we did was I was like, well, how do I block the facet, taper it down, get out of the way of the scapula, allow us to do some of that work. And that, again, that is a Tom Wiscombe design. I was like, Tom, this is what I want. This is what it looks like. And then he was like, well, it needs to have these, these pain channeling grooves so that uh, it's more aesthetic. And I was like, great, fantastic. 
All right, I got to show one more. This oh, is, boy. I love this one. This comes with different attachments, but I love this. I don't know if you have a name for this particular one, but it's the Battlestar, but this is the attachment. You, you can also put handles on it. But yeah. this is the one I use for my hip flexor and quads. Oh. And There's something about, you know, one of the things that we recognize is, you know, the foam roll, the ubiquitous foam roller was really designed. It was like a manufacturing um, sort of byproduct out of Colleen, Texas. And um, it was this extruded foam. And it was originally kind of con conceived as a pool toy. And then some bright physical therapist was like, oh, well, like that white oh. foam pool noodle, we could do some work with that. Well, it turns out, once again, it's either way too soft or way too slick. But for a lot of us, it's just too tall off the ground. So changing the durometer, the hardness of the surface matters. Sometimes we need really soft stuff for people. And sometimes we need really hard stuff for people. And we need different diameters. And so being able to get up off the ground a little bit and roll in place so the roller didn't move, change things a little bit. You can grip the tissue and create shear and locally, yeah. that little spin. But also you can take it out. And if you're working on the ground, you're not kind of jacked over a 12 inch tall you know, wheel, which kind of puts you into strange positions. So, you know, that was our, again, what we're trying to do here is say, hey, here's a problem I'm having as an athlete and a therapist. Is there a better set of tools to go out there? And, you know, now, you know, the supernova has been knocked off by Nike and, and oh, you know, yeah. everyone else has a ball that size because everyone's like, that's a good idea. We should have a ball that size. So I was like, yes, I agree. Well, they're beautifully made and uh, you can get those at uh, www.roguefitness.com and your website is thereadystate.com. We'll have these linked below, uh, just chock full of information. You, you gotta check it out. Well, what I really appreciate that and what I'll say is that if you're a famous PT fan and people are, <laughs> you guys are killing it. I saw the post where you're like, are you the most famous PTs? I was like, you're some of the most famous PTs I know. Um, <laughs> You know, Steffi Cohen is a famous, um, Aaron Horshig, Squat U. There's yeah, some great, yeah. you know, great there's sport. just so bright. But you can take 100% of our theory and our work and our tools and drop it right into your work. So people exactly. don't have to choose a style. Exactly. Everyone's style should dovetail. And that's what's really important. I want people to appreciate that what I'm, you're saying or, or what you're being very nice about shining the light on our work is that it, it integrates with your work perfectly absolutely that's uh, it's just changed my life and, and my approach to therapy i just i i can't say enough about this book and his other books too i got a couple more <laughs> so but i i know we got to be respectful of your time so we'll have these other books linked below too oh uh, no problem and right now we're working on a book called built to move which is about these base camp behaviors not talking about exercise but you know really looking at you know, in two and a half million years, the, the human being is still the human being. And in 10,000 years, we really haven't changed that much. The length, I mean, I'm a little fatter and your femur's a little longer, but really <laughs> you would recognize yourself from 10,000 years ago. And the shoulder is the shoulder. And what we're trying to do is say, hey, look, here are the best practices to our knowledge coming out of high performance worlds which are really like a fast way to stress test everything, right? Like formula one that gives us the best access to our physiology in a way that you can integrate it into your life. So sitting on the grounds, going for some walks, some simple mobilizations, you know, how we think about, you know, trying to demystify food a little bit so that we create a really a more robust person in a way that isn't that we're super agnostic about the exercise. And if you don't exercise, we can still say, well, you have a physical practice, you're killing it. So, you know, cause I think what we've said is exercise, exercise, exercise. I'm like, hang on, you're not sleeping at all. I can't even tell what's going on or why you have pain because you don't walk and you don't sleep. So let's try to cross off some of those things. And I feel like if we can get people starting to think differently about their environment, then some of the problems that pop up later on are gonna be a little bit more manageable. Well, we'd love to have you back on when that book comes out, if you want to consider it. But uh, Oh, of course. Anytime. I'm such a fan well, of what you're all doing. And it's so great. There's a, a neighbor up the street came down and she doesn't know what I do for a living. And uh, she was like, I, you know, got on and there are these physical therapists, Bob and Brad, and they fixed my shoulder. And have you ever heard of them? And I was like, yeah, I'm a physical therapist. I have heard of those guys. They're awesome. Oh, and she right. had no idea what we did. 
but she was just singing your praises, my neighbor up the street. And I was like, aren't they great? And they're like, yes, they're just so great. And I was like, so glad that the system is working. We're getting the message out that you can make yourself feel better. You have agency and you don't always have to wait. The professional person is always there to assist you, but you can begin a really sophisticated conversation about making yourself feel better and function better today. Well, again, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time today. And uh, we'll have the links below. And again, I hope to have you on again in the future. If you Anytime you guys want to go deep down the rabbit hole and talk more lifting technique, I'm I'm always down, you know, I, right. you know, uh, and these nerdy conversations are, you know, are what I live for. So uh, thank you, fellow thank PT you nerds. Much.